0: Uh, concentration camp or colony uh, district not that good with a bow and arrow I think I uh, I think I failed archery merit badge twice in Boy Scouts and maybe I passed it um, eventually but uh, I don't think I want to participate in any kind of hunger game or hunting game but I would probably just go down told Debbie this not long ago, I think I would just go down with the resistance at the beginning. Uh, and uh, and I've thought about that, and I think the reason I would is because of my hope of heaven. And honestly, what the gospel I trust and hope has, has done in me, that uh, this life is... Uh, very brief, and this is certainly not the end, and um, this is what, this life is not what we were made for. And because of the depressing things in our culture, we we become probably overly preoccupied with, um, you know, the imaginative... Uh, end time kind of stuff we become overly preoccupied with uh, human potential and uh, the ability to to look at self-improvement and preoccupied with human potential and self-improvement over self-denial which was a huge message of the Lord Jesus we probably tend to become a little preoccupied actually with the, the here and now instead of the then and there we become more preoccupied by how we take care of our bodies which is important but don't think that much about how we're going to care for our souls so, in all that preoccupation about here and now and self, we lose the mightier, holier, weightier things of God's Word and things that really, that really matter to God and obviously should matter to us. And so, what happens? what what needs to happen is that is that we need to be shocked out of this preoccupation that we're not just maintaining ourselves but our focus needs to be needs to be shocked and i can't think of any better shock than the wrath of god the wrath of god really i mean do we really believe in the wrath of God. Look with me at Revelation 15. And this is the inspired and errant Word of God. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for which them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And after this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen and with golden sashes around their chest. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever." And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. This is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of the living God. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that you will take your word now and by your Holy Spirit make proper application of it to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The wrath of God is really, really hard for us to accept intellectually and emotionally. I know to many of you in times past it may Seem to be cruel. A very common question is asked about the wrath of God and about hell is obviously this question how could a loving God be so angry? How could a loving God be so angry that he would pour out his wrath upon people that he would send people to an eternal hell? How could a loving God send people to hell? A.W. Pink points out that there are more references to God's anger and God's fury and God's wrath than there is about God's love and God's tenderness. Now, the frequency of something in the Bible doesn't make it any more true or false, but it does make it interesting that the Bible is full of references to the fact that God is a God of anger and wrath and justice. So the bottom line, the the question for us to consider, and sort of the shocking thing that gets us out of this preoccupation with everything except things that matter, is in that day, will you be judged... Or will you be delivered? I mean, that's, that's really the question before us. Will you be judged or will you be delivered? And, and the question is this. Do you really believe this? I mean, when, when the Bible talks about the wrath of God, talks antithetically about heaven and about hell, about good and bad, about righteousness and unrighteousness, do, do you really, really believe these things? And here's what we struggle with. We struggle with the fact, okay, I understand Christianity. I think I understand the gospel. I'm going to believe this, but in a sense, I'm kind of hedging my bets. In other words, if I believe this about the gospel, about heaven and hell, about truth and righteousness, if I really believe this, and then I find out you know, when I die or at the end of time that it just, it just wasn't true, I really haven't lost anything here. Really, I've, I've, I've been okay. And, and it's, so, it's sort of like hedging your bets. But I don't think that's what the Scripture calls us to. I think what it calls us to, do we really believe this? I mean, do we really, really, really believe what the Bible has to say about this topic? So I want to do three things here. I, I want to talk about what is the wrath of God? Secondly, where does the wrath of God fall? And thirdly, how can I escape the wrath of God? So what is the wrath of God? Where does the wrath of God fall? And how can I escape God's wrath? Now here in verse 1 of Revelation 15. What is the wrath of God? The wrath of God is introduced to us. I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. Now, the book of Revelation is a book of worship about worshiping the Lamb and the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus being revealed to us. There's, there's tons of symbolic language but the real message is are you going to worship the beast or worship the lamb and it is a very beautiful picture of the final triumph of jesus christ who is the king of kings and the lord of lords the book is about his triumph the final triumph of the lord jesus that we look forward to the new heaven and the new earth and so several things through this book are opened and they're all in sevens and it's it's, it's a letter to the churches. Uh, people see the lamb. There's seven seals. There's seven trumpets that are a warning that this judgment is coming, that the wrath of God is coming. There's seven visions. There's a great company of folks. And there's these seven bowls of wrath. The trumpets were a warning. The bowls are actually the promise. And... They're very similar to the plagues in Egypt. If you'll read, go back in Exodus and and read about the plagues in Egypt, these seven bowls of wrath here in Revelation 15 and 16 are very similar. And if you get over into chapter 16, the bowls are eventually poured out And uh, there are several things that happen. The first one is they're they're just ugly and painful sores. People's health is really judged. Uh, The sea is polluted, which affects commerce. Uh, The rivers are polluted, which affects drinking water. The scorching sun uh, comes down upon the land, and uh, people still are not repenting. Uh, God, is, their, their attention is still not grabbed by a holy God. There is darkness. They still don't repent. You see the similarity of what was going on in Egypt. Uh, the Euphrates is dried up, which sets up uh, the armies from the east. That sets up the whole Armageddon, the final battle between the seat of the woman and the seat of the serpent. And then lastly, the air is poisoned, uh, wrath is finished, great hailstones come down, weighing at least a hundred pounds. It, it's just a it's an amazing symbolic picture of God's judgment and God's wrath. And the question then is asked, well, why? I mean, what is what is God so angry about? I mean What is the wrath? Well, it's God's intense anger and indignation toward our sin. The fact that we have ignored His truth and His law and our hearts are dark and in word and thought and deed, we contradict everything that's revealed to us in Scripture about how we should live. And God is angry. And one thing about God's wrath, though, is that it is always judicial and always fair. I mean, He warns us that He's going to punish sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death. It's not like we don't have a heads up about this. From the time that we are born and we begin to manifest characteristics and and fruit that's so contrary to scripture God says he will punish sin and we really receive what we deserve this is not uh, God being capricious this is not some kind of of irrational rage. You've seen people get so angry. You've maybe been the the object. Maybe you've been the victim of someone's anger. Maybe you're the villain where you've just totally lost self-control and just irrationally let loose on someone. God is not irrational or capricious. But I want to say this right up front here about the wrath of God. With everything I've said about God being angry and about we receiving what we deserve, it is the wrath of God, the anger of God, that really helps us understand the love of God. And I don't think this morning that you will ever be able to clearly understand God's love unless you understand God's wrath love so amazing and so divine and we begin to understand that love as we understand his wrath now I had this was probably a couple years ago I had a a seminary student in my class at Reformed Seminary in Charlotte who uh, had uh, been to a... And that seminary student, by the way, is not in this city and is not in this room. So you can stop imagining who it would be. You don't know. Uh, He uh, had gone to more of an upper-tier school and had graduated undergrad with a 4.0. And uh, he'd taken one of my classes, and um, it was an open book exam. And I graded the exam, and on one of the questions, he just didn't quite give me what I wanted. So I dinged him a few points, and I mean, he still got an A. I think it was an A minus maybe, but he, he still got an A. And so he comes up and he talks to me with his paper, and he says, and, you know, he says, well, what about this, this? And I said, well, this is what I was really looking for. This was in the class lectures. This is mentioned in some of the books you were supposed to read. And I said, man, you you just didn't give me what I was asking for. And he keeps on arguing. He says, but I'm I'm so close to, you know, 100 here. Maybe it's a 97 or something, 96. I don't know. And he he started arguing. I said, hey, let me ask you a question. said have you ever made a B and he said "Mm, not like in a final grade and I said you know if you keep this up you're going to make your first B (laughs) now you know you really never appreciate an A unless you know the possibility of an F Some of you need to fail. Some of you need to fail desperately. Because you will never really appreciate the grace of God and the love of God until you understand ultimate failure. You will never understand the love of God unless you understand the punishment of God and the reality of that. And so, God is very right. And God is very just in pouring out His wrath. Again, at the end of the day, we either worship the beast or we worship the lamb. And you see in this text, and I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast in its image, and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands." And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. The wrath of God is real, and it's God's intense anger and indignation towards sin. Okay, that's what it is. But secondly, where does the wrath of God fall? Well, if you look at verse 5... After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chest. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. And then in chapter 16... The Scripture goes into detail of how these bowls of wrath are poured out that we talked about that are comparable to the seven plagues. So where does it fall? Well, the plagues or the bowls of wrath cover just about everything, but in particular let's let's really apply this to, to us right now, not in some symbolic language about a final battle or the finality of of Jesus becoming the king and the conqueror. But what about right now? Could there be, again, just bits of God's wrath affecting us? Perhaps with our idolatry or our lives. You know, even our lives and our addictions, for instance, can become our hell right now. How many lives are just crushed and... How many people are hurt because someone has become addicted to something, whether it's power or control or alcohol or drugs or sex or pornography. I mean, we could just go on and on and on. And how people's lives are absolutely wrecked by even their idolatry or their addictions. we see our identity even becoming something that affects us and crushes us and ruins us I, I i think of the story in luke 16 of the rich man and lazarus it's really interesting that you know the rich man dies and goes to hell and and lazarus is in the bosom of abraham and in in heaven and and the the rich man is suffering in hell and he wants somebody to come and, and uh, dip water on his tongue and then he wants uh, uh, his brothers to know so they won't have to experience this and, and, but the interesting thing about the rich man and Lazarus the rich man doesn't have a name and the wrath of God begins to become poured out on people and in even finality there is no identity in hell Things that really matter to you. Things that identify you. What really identifies you. Things that, that really identify you may be the very things that destroy you. The thing that you're most aligned with, may be, and, and most preoccupied by, and most taken over by, may be the very thing that will destroy you. The thing that you live your life for. The thing that you can't wait to do. The thing that you can't wait to get to. Is the very thing that may indeed destroy you. He's told, the rich man is told, you had your good things here. You had the good life here. This is what you wanted. I mean, this poor man would love to have the crumbs that fell from your table. You had your good things here. They gave you that identity. And even now we think, if I don't have this, If I don't get this, then I am nothing. This is more important to me than anything. An idol is something that you love more than anything else. This is more important to me than God. I want to worship something else. This is what I want. Here's the interesting thing about addictions. It usually starts this way. We all experience stress. In some way or another... Life becomes stressful, and so how do we respond to that? There's a tendency on our part to to withdraw and be alienated when we find ourselves under great stress. To, to, under great stress, to co- be quiet, to not co- not talk, not communicate with our husbands or wives or friends, the church. We we withdraw. We're alienated, and in that alienation, there is something that catches our eye or catches our taste or grabs our heart other than God, other than crying out in our loneliness and our brokenness and our despair, Oh God, help me, take care of me, save me. I look to the right, I look to the left. There is no one who notices me. There is no one who cares for my soul. And so we find something that we think does. And that bondage, that that substance becomes a bondage. And that's what we run to. And the amazing thing about that whether it's drugs, alcohol, power control, sex, pornography, whatever addiction, gambling, whatever it might be, whatever addiction it is, what happens is when we take in that bond that substance and we become bound to that, we're in bondage to that, the amazing thing is we get relief. We get relief. But we've gone after the wrong redeemer. We've gone after the one thing to save us that cannot save us. And for a temporary period of time, we are relieved. But then that bondage and that false relief produces guilt. And what does the guilt do? The guilt creates more stress. And what does the stress do? More alienation. What does the alienation do? More substance abuse. What does more substance abuse bring? Temporary relief. Doing that does what? Produces more guilt. You see the cycle? And that's having gone after a false God, a false thing, and the very thing that we want and think we have to have may be the very thing that destroys us. And so God's wrath, God's judgment against sin, being withdrawn from Him, withdrawing ourselves from Him, will bring His wrath. And it will fall on us for simply being who we are. It will fall on us for simply being who we are that our hearts have turned toward another God, that we've worshipped the beast instead of the lamb, or the wrath of God will fall on Jesus as your representative. Now, this is where we are. It's like, okay, am I going to represent myself, hedge my bets, or am I going to be represented by Jesus? Am I going to know that in the final end of all things, the finality of all things, that the wrath of God fell on Jesus and will not fall on me? So how can I escape the wrath of God? Well, you notice here in Revelation 15, there are those who conquered the beast in its image, and verse three says, "And they sing and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the lamb." And they're singing, "Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways." Now now Just and true are your ways, about to pour out your wrath, but your ways are true. I mean, God's justice and God's wrath is is righteous. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For alone you are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Everything that God does is righteous. It's right. It's true. It's pure. And... These people are singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. And if you think about the song of Moses, what is the song of Moses? You go back to Exodus 15 and what has happened? The people of God have just been delivered from Egyptian captivity. Matter of fact, God opened up the Red Sea. And they went through dry ground as the sea. You saw the movie. The, you know, the, you're going through the, the middle of the sea, and they get to the other side. And the Egyptians are chasing them. And then what happens? The sea comes down on the Egyptians, and they're delivered. And so in Exodus 15, they sing this great they sing this great song of deliverance. And these people on whom the wrath of God will not fall. And those of us here this morning on whom the wrath of God will not fall are those who sing the song of deliverance. Singing is important. But again, we understand that those who are singing are not perfect. Those who are singing have not experienced some kind of ultimate moral perfection Matter of fact, this reminds me of years, years, years ago, when I was in Mabel Glover's sixth grade all boys Sunday school class. And Mabel Glover, and she actually wore gloves, I remember that. She she had a you know, these boys, sixth grade boys, and you know, we would flip spit wads and pinch one another and act up in Sunday school and she would finally have it with us you know and she'd look at us and she'd shake her finger and she says let me remind you boys of something you need to know this only good little boys go to heaven and bad little boys go to hell that's wrong It's bad people that go to heaven. It's bad people that have realized their hearts and their sin and and their corruption and they have nowhere to go but to run to Jesus. It's it's bad people. It's not the righteous that Jesus is dying for. It's the bad person. And this is why we we know that's why failure is, is so important for us. It's not by being good. It's not moral performance. The, the wrath of God, we will escape the wrath of God, not because of the moral performance, not because of being good. We will escape the wrath of God because we have been redeemed and delivered like the people in Exodus 15, that God let them pass through. God saved them. Exodus is a beautiful picture of the gospel, a beautiful picture of redemption. And they're singing the song of Moses, the song of the Lamb, Their story of deliverance out of Egypt, out of bondage. It's a picture of the redeemed who did not worship the beast, but worshiped the lamb. But the sad thing about this is that after that Red Sea experience and after that deliverance, it wasn't long before, there was a golden calf that grabbed their attention. And so they started to worship the cow instead of the lamb. And that's our life on this side of heaven. We are so inconsistent. And it's another reason why we can't just... Depend on our performance and our good works and our abilities to try harder or work harder because we will have setbacks. And just as we are rejoicing and singing about deliverance before we know it, we're bowing down to a golden calf. And we don't know how that calf got here. People just threw this golden stuff into a pot and out came this calf. That was the explanation. Then our hearts need to be recaptured again and again and again. And isn't it interesting? I mean, okay. How, how do you forget a Red Sea experience? I mean, if you were actually there and you saw that happen and you walked through, how would you, how would you ever forget that? Just in a minute, we're going to come to this table. And we're told that we need to come to this table to remember Because from week to week, we forget about the great deliverance that we have in Jesus. The great deliverance that has occurred in our lives, the great escape from wrath and judgment that has occurred because the wrath of God fell upon Jesus on the cross. It cannot fall on you. If you are in Christ, if you've come to Christ If you have repented and trusted Christ, the wrath of God cannot fall upon you. It fell upon Christ. This is why I would plead with any of you this morning who are sort of on the fence about this or you're not sure you're a Christian or you really haven't trusted Christ. You may be an unbeliever that's just really seeking and, and wanting to know, please come to Jesus. Please trust in Jesus. Because the wrath of God fell on him and this supper reminds us of that in such a visual way we need to remember because our hearts are prone our hearts are so prone to wander from the God we love now let me quickly apply this does heaven really lift you up the thoughts of spending eternity in heaven really lift you up Could you say I could, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord? To live, but to die is gain? Or are you too tied to this world? As C.S. Lewis says, we're so easily satisfied. We're making mud pies when we don't realize we could be down at the beach. And you cannot understand the gospel unless you really, 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 really believe in the wrath of God, the judgment of God. Martin Lloyd Jones gives this illustration, talks about, says you're away and somebody's staying in your house and you're gone for several weeks or whatever, and somebody's staying at your house so you. You talk to them periodically, and the person staying in your house says, Oh, by the way, one of your bills came in today, and I paid it. Now, that could be pretty interesting. Uh, Was it like postage due, (laughs) or was it the mortgage? Or was it something even larger? And honestly, based upon what it was, and the guy is saying, you don't have to pay me back. You don't need to worry about it. It's taken care of. It's paid. That's going to make a huge difference. How we respond to that person. How we love that person. How we express our gratitude to that person. And the, really the good news for us this morning, and this is so true. We sing about it. Jesus paid it all. You understand that Jesus paid all of your debt. He paid all all of your bills and expects nothing in return other than we love Him and praise Him and expect, express our gratitude to Him. And that comes out of a changed heart. That flows out of our heart. Our sanctification flows out of our justification because He paid it all. Paul tells us in Romans 3 and Romans 5 that we are justified by the blood of the Lamb. That He became a propitiation for us. That, That means that He appeased the wrath of God. That Jesus on the cross satisfied God's wrath. His anger, His wrath would be poured out upon all. And Jesus representing us satisfied or appeased that wrath. An expiation, a word that simply means he removed our sin. The object of our propitiation is God. The object of expiation is sin. And by the blood of Christ, the blood of the Lamb, we have been justified. And the wrath of God will not fall upon us. Hear me here. It is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Paul expresses that in uh, Romans chapter 2. And I I just want to read this part. Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience? And none of us would say we disagree with that. We know that God Is kind. We know that God forbears, he's patient with us. We know that. We'd say that's a characteristic of God. He says, But do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's kindness and God's patience and God's forbearance is to lead us to repent. We are to flee the wrath that is to come. And we flee the wrath that is to come by simply doing this. One old Puritan said this, I think. That we pick up all of our good works and we pick up all of our bad works and we put them in one pile and we run from them as fast as we can to Jesus. We flee the wrath to come by being found in Jesus, by running to Jesus. It is true that you must come before God in worship or you will come before Him in judgment. And brothers and sisters, here is the good news. Here here is such good news that we'll see at this table. Jesus did not come just to bring judgment Jesus came to bear judgment that the wrath of God the judgment of God fell on his own son so that we might escape that is your only way to escape this morning there is no other way there is no other name You cannot be good enough. You cannot do anything to escape the wrath of God but to come to Christ. And let me encourage you to run to Him knowing that He will receive you, that He will wrap His arms around you, He will hold you so tightly in His hands. He will never let you go and no one can ever pluck you from His hands. I don't want you just to feel that. I want you to really believe that. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's pray. Father, it's unbelievable to us, it's amazing to us how you love us. Love so amazing, so divine demands all of our attention, all of our devotion. Thank you for clearly expressing to us and showing us in your word your commitment to us, your love for us, and the person of Christ. Thank you as we come to this table that we will picture your wrath falling upon Jesus on our behalf. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.